source of true delight, whom I unseen adore. Unveil thy beauties to my sight, that I might love thee more. Oh, that I might love thee more. You're listening to the weekly podcast from Fort Worth Presbyterian. The following message was recorded live from our sanctuary. Our prayer is that this message would nurture a joy for loving God and loving people in you as you listen. See my bleeding Let's pray before we read God's Word. Lord, we pray for your wisdom. Uh, we pray for your diligence. We pray for the work of the Spirit in our midst, that you will move us and Lord, that you will chisel us and form us uh, to be a people who are, who carefully uh, choose these men who would lead us in the work of mercy, uh, men who are given to mercy, men who, Lord, th- this is a daunting thing because really every single one of us is to be given to mercy. The, James says that to the one who shows no mercy, no mercy will be given to him. Lord, we must all be marked by lives that in some way image Jesus, that we are spending ourselves for the sake of others all around us. Lord, make us, we pray, first of all, a whole congregation given to mercy, a whole congregation of servants And then amongst us mercy givers, amongst us servants, that there would be those that you call forth to lead us in that servanthood, to organize us in that servanthood, to exhort us and set the pace for us in terms of that servanthood. Oh, Lord, we pray that you would forgive us in the many ways in which each one of us uh, fails in showing mercy and kindness and goodness and, and giving up of time and gifts and efforts to serve one another within this church and others outside the church. Uh, may we, Lord, not grow weary in doing good as Paul commands in Galatians 6, uh, but as each one has opportunity that we will uh, do good both within, especially to those within the household of faith, and then to those outside as well. Lord, we pray that we will bear your image. We thank you that you've called us from darkness to light, that you have formed us and made us part of your new creation, that we've entered a new world with new king and new connections and new relationships. We are a new dwelling of the Holy Spirit. And Paul says that we are made in the image of God. We have a new self created after your image. Oh, Lord, enable us to put off our old self and to put on this new self that you have formed, uh, that we might uh, bear the glory of Jesus, that we might not hide our light under a bushel, but make known our works in such a way that People will see our good deeds and glorify our Father who is in heaven. That, that our, our, our works, amazingly as it would seem, can do what Paul says in Titus 2 to, to servants, that, um, that their, their deeds, their lives will uh, 
adorn the doctrine of God. Oh, Lord, how could it be that our lives, we would think our lives would would only sully the doctrine of God, would only stain the doctrine of God. But by your grace, your spirit working within us, we can adorn that doctrine. We can show how it works itself out, the beauty of what it does in our lives. Bless us to that end and bless us with leadership that we will show ourselves truly to be your people. And Lord, as we come to the reading of your word and the preaching of your word, bless it to our hearing. Bless it to our lives. May we hide it in our hearts and practice it in all of life. For Jesus' sake, amen. I have a ladybug here at Judges. (laughs) I mean, really, I do. I have a ladybug right here. All right. um, Page 200 in your Bibles. If you'd like to use the Pew Bible. Page 200. We introduced this book uh, last week, trying to give an overview of the book, and now we're jumping in. We're going to be taking Judges more or less a chapter each week, so there will be a pretty extensive reading um, each week as we uh, try to take it in big chunks. Oh, girl. Next week, we will be, I'll be out of town uh, helping with Aaron Morgan's uh, wedding. Uh, one of our single girls getting married and moving away from us uh, to Tulsa. Uh, so Keith will be preaching next week. Uh, you can look forward to that uh, great feast that you'll have with Keith preaching. And then we'll take up Judges uh, the week after that. After the death of Joshua, the people of Israel inquired of the Lord, Who shall go up first for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? The Lord said, Judah shall go up. Behold, I've given the land into his hand. And Judah said to Simeon, his brother, Come up with me into the territory allotted to me that we may fight against the Canaanites. And I likewise will go with you into the territory allotted to you. So Simeon went with him. Then Judah went up. And the Lord gave the Canaanites and the Perizzites into their hand, and they defeated 10,000 of them at Bezek. They found Adonai Bezek at Bezek and fought against him and defeated the Canaanites and the Perizzites. Adonai Bezek fled, but they pursued him and caught him and cut off his thumbs and his big toes. And Adonai Bezek said, Seventy kings with their thumbs and their big toes cut off used to pick up scraps under my table, as I have done, so God has repaid me. And they brought him to Jerusalem, and he died there. And the men of Judah fought against Jerusalem and captured it, and struck it with the edge of the sword and set the city on fire. And afterward, the men of Judah went down to fight against the Canaanites who lived in the hill country, in the Negev, and in the lowland. And Judah went against the Canaanites who lived in Hebron. Now the name of Hebron was formerly Kiriath Arba, and they defeated Shishai and Ahiman and Talmai. From there they went against the inhabitants of Debir. The name of Debir was formerly Kiriath Sefer. And Caleb said, He who attacks Kiriath Sefer and captures it, I will give him Aksa, my daughter, for a wife. And Othniel, the son of Kinaz, 
Caleb's younger brother, captured it, and he gave him Aksah, his daughter, for a wife. When she came to him, she urged him to ask her father for a field. And she dismounted from her donkey, and Caleb said to her, What do you want? She said to him, Give me a blessing. Since you have set me in the land of the Negev, give me also springs of water. And Caleb gave her the upper springs and the lower springs. And the descendants of the Kenite, Moses' father-in-law, went up with the people of Judah from the city of Palms into the wilderness of Judah, which lies in the Negev, near Arad. And they went and settled with the people. And Judah went with Simeon, his brother, and they defeated the Canaanites who inhabited Zephath and devoted it to destruction. So the name of the city was called Hormah. Judah also captured Gaza with its territory and Ashkelon with its territory and Ekron with its territory. And the Lord was with Judah and he took possession of the hill country, but he could not drive out the inhabitants of the plain because they had chariots of iron. And Hebron was given to Caleb, as Moses had said, and he drove them out from it, uh, the three sons of Anak. But the people of Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites who lived in Jerusalem. So the Jebusites have lived with the people of Benjamin in Jerusalem to this day. Still with me? (laughs) Okay. The house of Joseph also went up against Bethel, and the Lord was with them. And the house of Joseph scouted out Bethel. Now the name of the city was formerly Luz. And the spies saw a man coming out of the city, and they said to him, Please show us the way into the city, and we will deal kindly with you. And he showed them the way into the city, and they struck the city with the edge of the sword, but they let the man and all his family go. And the man went to the land of the Hittites and built a city and called its name Luz. That is its name to this day. Manasseh did not drive out the inhabitants of Bashan and its villages, or Tanakh and its villages, or the inhabitants of Dor and its villages, or the inhabitants of Ebliam and its villages, or the inhabitants of Megiddo and its villages. For the Canaanites persisted in dwelling in that land. When Israel grew strong, they put the Canaanites to forced labor, but did not drive them out completely. And Ephraim did not drive out the Canaanites who lived in Gezer. So the Canaanites lived in Gezer among them. Zebulun did not drive out the inhabitants of Kitron, Kitron, or the inhabitants of Nahalol. So the Canaanites lived among them, but became subject to forced labor. Asher did not drive out the inhabitants of Akko, or the inhabitants of Sidon, or Alab, or Akzib, or of Helba, or of Afik, or of Rehob. So the Asherites lived among the Canaanites, the inhabitants of the land, for they did not drive them out. Naphtali did not drive out the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh, or the inhabitants of Beth Anath. So they lived among the Canaanites, the inhabitants of the land. Nevertheless, the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh and Beth Anath became subject to forced labor for them. The Amorites pressed the people of Dan back into the hill country, for they did not allow them to come down to the plain. The Amorites persisted in dwelling in Mount Herez, in Ajalon, and Shalbaim. But the hand of the house of Joseph rested heavily on them, and they became subject to forced labor. 
and the border of the Amorites ran from the ascent of Akrambim, from Salah and upward. Now, now, this is the third major time someone went up. At first, Judah goes up to fight. Verse 22, Joseph went up against Bethel. And now, the angel of the Lord goes up. The angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochim. And he said, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you into the land that I swore to give to your fathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you, and you shall make no covenant with The inhabitants of this land, you shall break down their altars, but you have not obeyed my voice. What is this you have done? So now I say, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall become thorns in your sides, and their gods shall be a snare to you. As soon as the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the people of Israel, the people lifted up their voices and wept, and they called the name of that place Bochim, that is weeping. And they sacrificed there to the Lord. Thus the reading of God's word. The beginning of Judges is purposely framed like the beginning of the book right before it, Joshua. Where we read, after the death of Moses, and then then it proceeds. Here, after the death of Joshua. And so... This, first of all, not only is an introduction to what's coming in Judges, but it's really a contrast or it's looking back to say, hey, there's a relationship here uh, to that former work, uh, the former uh, events that occurred in Joshua's day. After the death of Joshua actually is a boundary event in Scripture. You've got Genesis 12 through 50 where these the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. Then you've got Israel in Egypt, coming out of Egypt into the land of Canaan. That's Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua. Then the death of Joshua. Joshua is really kind of an extension of Moses. It's Moses, Joshua. So we've got these huge divisions. The first with the patriarchs, then Israel getting out of Egypt into the land under Moses, Joshua, death of Joshua. Now we've got a new world. And you'll notice immediately that there's not another leader like there had been before. After the death of Moses, we hear about Joshua. But after the death of Joshua, uh, they're looking strictly to the Lord. But the question of leadership arises. Now, the book opens up with so much promise. Who will go up against this? The Lord says, Judah shall go up. And he says, I have given the land into his hand, verses 1 and 2. So having come from Joshua, with all of the victories of Joshua, Judges opens up, Judah's going to go up, the Lord is with Judah. It looks like it's going to just keep progressing in this way. But actually, verses 1 and 2 form a kind of contrast to the whole rest of the chapter and the whole rest of Judges. Would it be that this was the epitome of what's going to happen in Judges, but it's the antithesis of what's going to happen in Judges, actually? As we saw last week, there's this downward spiral that occurs in Judges. Now, it may seem kind of... (laughs) Well, it may seem like it, it just doesn't make sense that 
we could have such defeat in Joshua, but then so many issues and problems in Judges. Have you ever heard of a country that defeats another country militarily really quickly, but then takes years and years to really leave that country in a way that is better than before? Ever heard of that ever happening in our day? And so we know how hard it is to, even though you win a military victory and you, in a sense, break the power of a country, but then to wipe out all the pockets of resistance, it just seems near impossible, even in our day with the kind of military we have. And that's what was called for here, an initial blitzkrieg of of defeat of the enemies, but then each tribe had to then possess its territory. It kind of fundamentally broke the back of Canaanite rule, but then each tribe was to complete the task of possessing their portion of Israel, and at that they failed miserably. Now we'll see how there's a contrast between Judah in the first part of this uh, chapter and what's called Joseph in the last half. You'll notice Joseph is mentioned in verse 22 and in verse 35, and it shows that the whole northern tribe is kind of subsumed under the name Joseph. Uh, you won't find a tribe called Joseph, but you'll, you'll see two tribes that became Joseph, uh, Manasseh and Ephraim, Ephraim and Manasseh. They're the largest two, and so probably because of that, the whole northern tribes are put under this name of Joseph. But you see the great contrast, don't you, especially beginning in verse 27 when this, this over and over again, Manasseh did not drive out. Ephraim did not drive out. And it, and it just names village. He didn't, they didn't drive out here. They didn't drive out there. They didn't drive out. I mean, it just gets a little monotonous, doesn't it? Just underscoring what they didn't do, they didn't do, they didn't do, they didn't do. And part of the contrast between the northern tribe and the southern tribe is likely to emphasize the leadership of Judah, which anticipates the leadership of Judah under David and Solomon and the Judean kings, the line of David, and ultimately, of course, the Lord Jesus Christ that came from Judah. But even toward the end of the section of Judah, we read this in verse 19 as we saw, the Lord was with Judah and he took possession of the hill country, but he could not drive out the inhabitants of the plain because they had chariots of iron. So we're going to look at this in uh, three sections. First, the consequences of unbelief, then some at the uh, conquest of belief or the conquest of faith consequences of unbelief, then the conquest of faith, and finally, the certainty of judgment. The certainty of judgment. Now, Judah certainly is uh, given the strongest role because at the beginning, Judah says to Simeon, Simeon's territory is within Judah, and Simeon is the smallest tribe. So this is a merciful, gracious thing that Judah does to join with Simeon, let them participate in the battle, and then Judah helps Simeon take over its territory. And we'll, we'll talk about the, the strength of, of, of joining together, as, as indicated with the tribes uh, in this section. But 
It's really odd, isn't it? Verse 19, it says, The Lord was with Judah to possession of the hill, but he could not drive out the inhabitants of the plain because they had chariots of iron. Do you remember any time in the Old Testament God saying, You will possess the land of the Canaanites except those places where they have iron chariots? You remember that anywhere? Me either, because it never is said. This is an indication of their unbelief. So that even Judah, the kingly line, line, the, the line in which the most good is said in this chapter, even at the end of the description of Judah, we start to see something of the unraveling. Okay, And the fact is later in Judges chapters 4 and 5 with uh, Barak and Deborah, we see what God can do to chariots. Why, he just brings a storm in, and the chariots become useless. In fact, they become uh, a, a, you know, a millstone around their neck, so to speak, and the Israelites defeat them, even though they have these chariots. And so the, this passage is showing us the greatness of the blessing of obedience uh, and the danger of disobedience, the consequences Uh, of disregarding the will of God. No doubt, it was hard to take the planes. It was difficult to go against the chariots. It was a fearsome thing. They probably had done so much to that point. It's like, do we still have to do that? Maybe it was a combination of laziness and unbelief, but in some way, unbelief began to manifest itself in, in Judah. Now, in the second section, and they're marked by who will go up, going up. That's the first section with Judah. And we'll return to that uh, parts of it in a little bit. But I want to show you already some of the differences in what happens with the house of Joseph in verse 22 and what happened with Judah in uh, earlier when they went up against the Canaanites and Perizzites. Now, this story may remind you of a story in Joshua when they went to spy on Jericho and found Rahab the harlot. It is purposely, not that it it did happen like this, but there are very uh, clear indications that he's playing off that event in Jericho. But there's a contrast because in Jericho, Rahab became a part of the people of God, right? She confessed faith in God. And she said, I want to be a part of the people of God. And she ended up being a part of God, of the people of God, and a, uh, from her, de- her descendants were part of the kingly line, actually. But this fella who is dealt with doesn't end up a part of the people of God. He's released, they make a covenant with him, and he ends up and starts another city the same name as the one they were taking over. Stark difference in what's going on here. And we assume he continued Canaanite worship from that point and would bring pressure upon the people of God. That's not a good thing. And the difference in Jericho being uh, waylaid, Jericho being destroyed, and a new Luz being built. Look at the contrast between what happened in Jericho, and what happens here uh, with Joseph. Also, the contrast of Joseph with Judah earlier, where Adonai Bezek is uh, 
is first ruined with his thumbs and toes as a judgment upon what he had done to others. And then he dies in Jerusalem while this man lives and he starts another city. So there are indications here that something is not right. They shouldn't have been making a covenant with this man. They're not supposed to make covenants with the Canaanites. And you get a feel for how this was leading downhill because right in verse 27, without any other mention, and Manasseh didn't drive out the inhabitants, and Ephraim didn't drive out, Zebulun didn't drive out. So already with Joseph, because of its comparison with Jericho and the comparison with what happened earlier with Judah, it is not good. There are signs of the downturn of unbelief. And as the spiral goes down, it's interesting how the progression occurs. First, you've got this Canaanite allowed to survive and flourish at a distance, okay? Then in the verses that follow, first it says the Canaanites are living with the Israelites. But in the last couple of verses it says Israelites are now living with Canaanites. So the emphasis is they're letting us live with them, the downward spiral. And when you get to verse 34, when the Amorites are pressing the people of Dan, it's not a Canaanite that's being allowed to survive. It's an Israelite that's being allowed to survive. So just the literature and the way he tells the story is just amazing, the structure of it, to demonstrate how things are falling off the cliff. And this is a very interesting contrast. The little appendix that's given to Judah's section begins with verse 19. The Lord was with Judah, took possession. He couldn't take the chariots. Uh, and then it includes uh, Hebron, etc., Here's the appendix to the northern tribes. It's basically divided into the southern tribes under Judah, the northern tribes under Joseph. Here's the appendix to the northern tribes, verse 36. And the border of the Amorites ran from the ascent of Akrabim from Selah and upward. They're not even mentioned. It's not even talking about the Israelites' border. It's given way to saying, here's the real border. Here's the real thing that was going on. The Amorites had a border. And that was, that's how this whole thing is defined. No wonder then that the assessment occurs in chapter 2 verse 1, the angel of the Lord. The angel of the Lord is, can be translated also messenger of the Lord. He's like the envoy of the Lord. Coming from the Lord, he declares the Lord's will and, and, and in scripture, Sometimes the messenger, then sometimes it'll say I. So there's, there's a blend of who this messenger is. Uh, and, and he's really the very presence and the very voice of God himself. And there, there are many things to say about all these uh, passages that we don't have time for. But the, the essence of this is that he is coming from... Uh, Gilgal, the place of worship, to this place. And it's more or less like if a bunch of managers of a company or, or in a, a branch of a company here in America had been abusing, misappropriating funds to the tune of several million dollars. I mean, spending it lavishly on all kinds of stuff they shouldn't have been spending it on. 
And they're having a, quote, board meeting, and it's basically a wine and cheese party with the most expensive things. And they're just playing around. It's 4 o'clock in the afternoon. They're having a big party, all two dozen of them. And suddenly, the head of the company from Berlin walks in, and he's got a stack of papers, and he throws them on the table and says, we're going to talk about this, and some heads are going to roll. Everything changes. (laughs) And it's ominous, you see, for the messenger of the Lord to come from Gilgal. This has associations of, the he's the very messenger that has led the people of God in battle. The Lord many times throughout the uh, earlier book says, my messenger will go before you and he will lead you. All right, now this messenger has been rebuffed. This messenger has been ignored. This messenger has been refused. And now he is showing up to assess the situation. This is a frightening thing that is happening at this point, that the messenger of God, the messenger of Yahweh has come. And he quotes, uh, he's drawing his assessment and his judgment from many passages in, in Numbers and Deuteronomy that talk about how you're not to make a covenant with them, you're not to intermarry with them, you must break down their altars. But as he concludes, you have not obeyed my voice What is this that you have done? And interestingly, where he said many times in the Old Testament, I will drive them out before you. Again and again, I will drive them out. I will drive them out here. I will not drive them out before you. I will not drive them out before you. And so, because they compromised again and again in unbelief, because they refused the difficult, costly work of eliminating the Canaanites. And we're going to talk about that a little bit because it's hard for us uh, to think about it this way. But because they disobeyed him repeatedly and refused him, then he is going to allow these people and their gods to be Thorns in their sides, or possibly it means just they're going to be in your side. They're going to be, it's almost as though you're going to be yoked to them now. You're going to be running alongside of them, and they're going to cause you so many issues and so many problems and so much destruction because you would not obey me and get rid of them. They will be a snare to you. And he warned again and again earlier, don't compromise with these people because their gods will be a snare to you. And that's exactly what they ended up doing. And so this place is called the place of weeping. The sad thing about this weeping, as we see in its context, is this apparently was just the shock of being found out, the sadness of the consequences of their sin, but there seems, even though there was weeping and sacrifice, there seems to be no change of heart as we go forward. The sadness of being caught in suffering consequences. And so one of the first things that we see in this disobedience and this neglect of the will of God is the shallowness of this crying. I love what one commentator says. They, they need to stop weeping and they need to start worshiping. But they really weren't worshiping God. And we must pray that God so works in our hearts that what may sometimes be for us an initial pain and shock 
of being found out or, or consequences falling upon our heads because of our sin, that we ask God to bring about in our hearts true repentance, real repentance. And real repentance is not a human accomplishment. It's not a self-made thing. There is no repentance apart from God's grace. And certainly the way the pattern just occurs over and over in, in Judges and just as a constant downward spiral, we see the shallowness of the so-called repentance of the people of Israel. Uh, Peter talks about people who've returned to their former way of life at the end of Second Peter 2. One of his images is a, pe- a pig that returns uh, after washing, he returns to the mud. The other one's a lot grosser, kids. It's like a dog that returns to its vomit. And so God pictures us being taken away from that ugly lifestyle of sin. And then in our sinfulness or in our choices to return to it, it's like a dog returning to its vomit. This reflects the goodness and the light of God's Word for us and His commandments for us. Sin is mistreating one another in thought, word, or deed. It's attitudes not marked by kindness and love and also attitudes that despise and dishonor God. We must be set free from these things. And He does set us free from these things. And it's a great image for us to think of these Israelites returning again and again and again to their idols uh, with shallow repentance and, 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 and that by God's grace as He and His power enables us to repent from the heart that we truly will change. We truly will be broken before Him as He works in us. And perhaps this image that Peter sets forth can help shock us to realize uh, I, I don't want to give my life to the very things that Jesus has died to set me free from, uh, the glorious uh, salvation of Christ. And in their unbelief, as we've said, it's probably some combination of, of uh, fear, uh, of laziness, of we're at it so long, we've done, we've done so hard, it's been so hard, we've done so much, and just the thought that it's just going to be okay, let's not worry about it. No wonder that uh, Paul tells us in Galatians 6, don't grow weary in doing good. He knows we're likely to grow weary. He knows that we fight and fight and fight over sin. And many of us can remember days when we really were fighting. We're really trying to get into His Word. Really trying to develop lives of prayer. And now, no, not so much. Not really praying that much. Not really worrying about His Word. We just think somehow we're coasting. We're drifting. Of course, it's a stream, Right? It's always a stream. You start drifting and coasting. You only drift and coast downstream. It's the only direction you can go. And Paul recognized it was the case with them then. In Hebrews chapter 2, the writer is talking to people who at one time made the most glorious confessions, lost their possessions because they were ministering to other people and that identification with them in prison made them lose their possessions. But they did it anyway. Now he's talking to them because after many years they're starting to rub down to the nub. And he says, 
Let us lay aside every weight and sin, Hebrews 12, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus who endured the cross. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. That's what happened with the Israelites. They grew weary and faint-hearted, and the results were disastrous. This writer is describing the seeds that eventually tore all of Israel and, and sent them into the exile. This is the pattern that was set up that finally caused the exile itself. And so to seek to be thorough in our lives, not turning away from personal relationships that need to be changed or need to be repaired, And we turn away and just let them drift because of the fear, the challenge, the transparency, the vulnerability of confronting, of of confessing sin. Uh, The disciplines of prayer and the word we've mentioned or responsibilities you're ignoring in your life and you've just gotten used to ignoring them. Unbelievers you're ignoring. Areas of your life, areas of sin that you're ignoring. Areas of initiative and ministry that you need to be taking. You see, our lives... We just always need to be moving out and completing the work, completing the work that God has called us to. And as we do so, we enter into the conquests of belief. Uh, The conquests of belief is demonstrated in what Judah did because when the Lord was with Judah, look what Judah was able to accomplish In fact, this little description of Othniel and Aksah and and having the land and her asking for water is this little oasis, this little beautiful picture of obedience that brings you into the land and into shalom and into the rich blessings and fellowship of God. Now, we're going to be in the, we're pilgrims in this dark world, but spiritually, we can enter into this spiritual time of spiritual enrichment for our lives, walking, rejoicing in the Lord always because we're seeking to give ourselves up to His will. It does call for courageous, uncomfortable, costly action to change. But this is what God enables us. And, and you know, that doesn't need to be the unusual people in our congregation. Wow, he or she really is spending himself for others. We hope that would mark every one of us. Every one of us is engaged in courageous, costly, uncomfortable sacrifice fueled by joy and trust in God. This, this pattern that we see in them must not be a part of our pattern. And we ourselves don't fight against flesh and blood, right? We fight against spiritual forces, but we're told in Ephesians 6, as we stand against sin and Satan, to stand strong in the Lord. There is the real hope, the reality, that you and I can be strong in the Lord. That means something. That's not for the few, you know, the Marines. We've got this special people called the the, the Christian Marines, the spiritual Marines. Every one of you is a Marine. Every one of you is called to this and enabled to stand strong in the Lord and to fight against the spiritual spiritual battles that we have. And we're we're encouraged because in 1 Peter 2, which uh, is uh, Amy Kitchell's verses for today, it says, 
He bore our sins in his body on the cross. In this passage, not so much that we receive forgiveness. He bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. His death sets us free, sets us on a whole new course. This is a reality. We're to put sin to death in Romans 8, 13, by the power of the Holy Spirit. We're told by the power of the Spirit we can abound in hope. We're told by the power, that's in Romans 15, we're told by the power of the Spirit we can know the length and height and depth and width of the love of Christ. The power of the Spirit working in us so that we are a picture of God's restoration to His, uh, to His fellowship. And I'm just going to mention this last thing about judgment. We have the, um, the consequences of unbelief and, uh, lives that are not showing a continued work of the conquest of faith, the ongoing work of faith. Uh, it's interesting how Paul says in Galatians 5, Six, that faith works itself out, manifests itself through love. So believing in love always move forward. But this passage, what may help you a little bit about understanding how they can put men and women and boys and girls to death by the sword, is that this is meant to be a picture of final judgment. In the final judgment, God will judge the wicked he will remake the heaven, the, the, we'll have the new heavens and the new earth. The earth will be restored. And it says the meek, his people, will inherit the earth. That's a picture of what's going to happen. That's a picture here that God is judging the wicked. The Canaanites were so wicked, did such horrible things over a period of hundreds of years that God finally was bringing judgment upon them. And this, at the same time, is a picture of his final judgment and giving the earth to his people. And so judgment occurs. If you are concerned about boys and girls and men and women under judgment, think about the flood. I think everybody died in the flood except for those in the ark. Judgment is sobering. And whereas the Israelites did not faithfully carry out that judgment, you can believe in the final day, the Lord Jesus will faithfully carry out that judgment. And the only hope that we have is the one Paul expresses in 1 Thessalonians when he says that we have been called to his son, and he says this phrase at the end of that chapter, who saves us from the wrath to come. This was his picture of the world. Wrath is coming. And in that sense... This world is just like Canaan at the time of the invasion of the Israelites. Judgment had come, and judgment now is upon this world. That's why in Acts 17, Paul speaking to the people in Athens, he says, the times have changed. The times of ignorance are over. It is now time to repent because he has selected a man by which he's going to judge the world. So at the point of Jesus, everything tips we are headed for judgment. Everything's in the context of judgment. We are seeking to bring people to salvation in the light of the coming judgment. We ourselves are now light in God's hands. We must realize the, the reality that people face. 
of being under judgment, headed for judgment, and all the more for ourselves. Ever be grateful every single day. Oh, Lord Jesus, because you've borne the wrath that I deserve, only because of that, I will be spared that judgment. Just like in Egypt, when the blood was covering the door of the Israelites, that's why the death angel passed. And then this final day, the death angel, that wrath, that judgment will pass over us because we have been won and cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ. And because of that great love, because of binding our hearts to Him, we have the capacity by His Spirit to relentlessly, relentlessly seek to conform our ways to Jesus Christ. Endure, brothers and sisters. Don't grow weary. Endure for the glory of our great Savior, Jesus. Let us pray. Lord, we... uh, Honor you and praise you, Lord, that you have given us the Lord Jesus Christ, our great deliverer, our great Savior, who has sacrificed himself and made himself the servant of his people by shedding his blood, winning our hearts so that, Lord, we no longer live for ourselves, but we live for this one who would die for us and who was raised for us. Lord, may our passion be stoked constantly by your Spirit. We confess to you how weak, how passionless we can be, how dead it seems we can be, how heartless we can be, O Lord, how lost it seems we can be. And yet, Lord, if you've laid hold of us, you will continue to stir us up. You will continue to work in our our spirits. You will complete the work which was begun in Christ Jesus. Another of the verses shared today. Oh, Lord, bless us. We trust you. You are our warrior. And you war with us and in us and for us ever and always. Bless us to that end. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this weekly podcast from Fort Worth Presbyterian. Our prayer is that this message was able to nurture a joy for loving God and loving people in you. Please visit our website for worship service times, directions to the church, and to subscribe to this podcast. Our web address is fortworthpca.org. Fort Worth Presbyterian is a part of the Presbyterian Church in America. my fears away won't you chase my fears away